Then shifting gears, we are wrapping up our series, our most recent series tonight. Um, we have been uh, doing a series on what we've called the heart for the harvest. And even though that might sound um, a little bit unusual, it's a, it's a phrase right out of the Bible. In fact, it's something that Jesus spoke about when he was going from village to village and he looked at the crowds. He looked at the, at the groups of people. And the Bible tells us in Matthew chapter 9 that he was moved with compassion. That's very important, by the way, because sometimes people seem to think that the primary emotion that God feels is one of anger and disgust. And, and to be honest, that can only be because maybe that's the message that a lot of Christians have given people, that we serve an angry God who's always looking to smite you. And uh, I want to encourage you that actually he's a God who looks at people and he is moved with compassion. Um, and then he goes on to tell his disciples, hey, there's actually a very ripe harvest, and if you weren't with us in part one of the series a few weeks ago, we just took a look at just some of the stats of, of people around the world and how many billions of people have yet to find hope and healing in a relationship with God. So, he, so Jesus is saying to them, hey, the harvest is ripe. The harvest isn't the problem. But he says the workers are few. So the workers are believers, uh, Christians. Uh, those who, who are in a relationship with God, Jesus was saying there's, there, there is a challenge on our hands, but the challenge isn't the harvest. The challenge is actually the hearts of God's people. Um, there's kind of this disparity with the ratio of uh, people that, that are actually open to being invited, uh, people that are open to just coming and seeing, people that are open to what the Bible you know, talks about in, in, in Psalms. It says, uh, just taste and see. So if you'll just, just, just taste and see that the Lord is good. Jesus was saying, there's no problem with the people that are, that are kind of ripe and ready. The challenge is with God's people, the workers. So pray to the Lord of the harvest to send workers out into the field. And so we've been talking for a few weeks about how, uh, for those of us that are in a relationship with God, so I, I fully recognize that not everybody is necessarily in that situation, but if we're in a relationship with God, then, then we're one of the workers. We're one of the people that Jesus was referring to where he said that we need to actually pray that the Lord would do something in our hearts so that we can be available to him to invest, invite, to pray for people, to care for people. And uh, the great news is that we have no responsibility to convince or convert anybody. So that actually takes a lot of pressure off. And we're going to see tonight, as, as I kind of conclude the series, just, just with a little bit of time that I have with you, that, that our primary responsibility is just, is just to, it is to care, it is to pray, and it's to share. So I want to look this evening a little bit at just this, this idea of, of the responsibility, but responsibility can sound so heavy. If you walk out of, here, out of here this evening with more heaviness, then I've failed, and I promise you that's not God's goal. God's goal is actually for us to, I believe that if it's God, it's always life-giving. So if it's life-giving, that means that the yoke will be easy and the burden will be light. So, so if, if ever you walk out of any service here and the yoke is heavier and the burden is tougher, well then, then either we've done something wrong or you've misunderstood I'm going to go with the odds of you misunderstanding. Okay, no, no, I'm joking. Um, so, so there isn't this pressure. There, there is actually, wait, we get to partner with God. We, we have the small part of play, but there is a small part of play. So let's just recognize that small responsibility to share, but we partner with a very big God who loves people more than you ever could, and He wants to meet needs. He wants to bring healing. He wants to bring 
hope. And so um, I want to take a look at a story in the Old Testament that you might not have heard of before. And unless you read the Bible, you know, from cover to cover, you might not have come across this story. But it's found in um, the Old Testament book of 2 Kings and chapter 6 and chapter 7. So I'm going to try and summarize quite a bit of it for you. And then we'll, we'll read a few passages. If you've got your phone with you and you have version the Bible app on your phone, then you can follow the notes. Just make sure that you save them if you want to go back to the notes. So some of the scriptures will be on there as well. But just to give you a a little bit of background uh, really quickly, we've got this story. Some of you might have heard of these two kind of major prophets in the Old Testament. One was Elijah and the other one was Elisha. So this is is around the time of Elisha and how uh, Israel had this enemy. Uh, they were the Arameans, or Aramaeans is probably the better way to pronounce it, and they were constantly wanting to attack the Israelites, but it seemed as though every time they would come up with a strategy to attack the Israelites, the Israelites seemed to know in advance what they were going to do, and so they were able to readjust and re-strategize, and, and they were able to counteract the attack of the enemy. And so after a while, the king of Aram is getting seriously cheesed off. Like almost imagine a Donald Trump type of personality who's going just ballistic, screaming at his leaders and his other military guys saying like, who is sharing our strategy with these people? We're going to kill somebody. Someone is spying. Someone is sharing. Find them. Kill them. Kill them dead. Deader than dead. We're going to do it wonderfully. Great. It's going to be a good killing. Like I can almost imagine this crazy personality of this king that's going ballistic with the fact that somehow he can only assume that someone is telling the Israelites what's going on. Then I, I, can, only, I can only imagine that he, maybe someone kind of puts his hand up very sheepishly and, and kind of says to me, actually, so sorry, Emma, uh, there's, there's, a guy, there's a guy in Israel who hears from God, his name is Elisha, and he tells the king of Israel, what you're planning to do. And that's the only way that they're actually able to counteract. And so, of course, the king of Aram is like, well, then let's go kill Elisha. So he gets his whole army together, and they go down to, to the valley or wherever it is that, that, that Elisha is living. And the Bible actually tells us in 2 Kings chapter 6 that, that Elisha and, and, and his servant, they wake up in the morning, and, and his servant, Elisha's servant, walks out of the front door, and he just sees I think it's kind of like a valley that is surrounded by this army, this enemy army who are there to kill Elisha and probably anyone connected to Elisha. And this guy's like, ugh, this is a problem. We pick up the story where Elisha responds to this in chapter 6 of 2 Kings, reading from verse 16. He says, don't be afraid. This is what he says to his servant. There are actually more on our side than on theirs. And I can only imagine that, that his first thought, the servant is like, uh-uh, like it's you and me, pal. Like, look at all these people that are here to kill us. And then Elisha, almost like graciously, gently prays, oh Lord, open his eyes and let him see. The Lord opened the young man's eyes, and when he looked up, he saw that the hillside around Elisha was filled with horses and chariots of fire. Eli, uh, the, the servant of Elisha, when, when, when God opened his eyes, so, so up until now, he'd been looking at the facts, okay? So, he, so he'd been looking at, the, at, at what's intimidating in front of him. All of a sudden, he could see the truth of what's actually the full picture. 
So, so what he was looking at initially wasn't incorrect, but it was incomplete. And when God opened his eyes, he could see the much bigger picture. And I want to encourage you that when we allow God to open our eyes to see, when we allow God to open our eyes to seeing people the way that he sees them, to, to seeing uh, the enemy actually for the size that he is and for seeing God the size that he is, it changes the level of boldness and confidence. When, when, when we allow God to open our eyes to see the role of the Holy Spirit, that is not all on you. That is not about how amazing you are or how charismatic you are or how clever you are. But actually, we have what the Bible calls a helper, the Holy Spirit, who is a counselor, a teacher, a guide, who is there to, to, to prompt us to say, okay, Jason, now. No, no, Jason, not now. Don't, don't, don't do that. Don't say that. Okay, just, just be patient. Okay, be generous. You, if we would have eyes to see, it would change our perspective. I believe it would give us way more confidence. It would give us way more calm. And by the way, I think it would give us a lot more compassion. If we allowed God to open our eyes to see people the way that he sees people, it's a game changer when it comes to compassion. So the story goes on, and it's actually almost comical where, where Elisha prays that they'll all go blind, you know, this, this enemy army. So, so imagine you've got this massive military, you know, contingent in front of you, and it's like, Lord, just make them blind, please. Like, all of a sudden, nobody can see anything, and Elisha says to them, the man you're looking for, he's not here. Follow me. And they follow him, and Elisha lands up leading this blinded army, right into the hands of the Israelite king. Now, I don't know about you, but if, if, if I've gone to find this guy and all of a sudden I've been blinded, I'm not going to follow the guy who prayed for me to be blinded and I've gone blind. And, and, even, if, and even if you get to the guy who you're actually after, like, what are you going to do? Like, you're blind. Like, what, what are you going to actually do, right? But they follow him anyway, and then into the hands of the Israelite king, and the Israelite king's like, what the heck? This is interesting. And he asks Elisha what to do. Elisha says, because he actually like, should we kill them? Elisha's like, no, no, just calm down, take a breath. They're prisoners of war. Let's feed them. And, and he prays for their sight to come back again. So they feed them. Sight comes back and they release them. You would think that they would be grateful, right? Because they were at their mercy. They could have killed him. Well, you'd be wrong. Just a short while later, the king of Aram decides again. So Benadad, the king of Aram, decides to again try and attack Israel. And this time it looks like he's actually succeeding. And we pick up a, a few verses later in verse 24 where it says, Sometime later, King Benadad of Aram mustered his entire army and besieged Samaria. This is where the Israelites were living. As a result... There was a great famine in the city. The siege lasted so long that a donkey's head sold for 80 pieces of silver and a cup of dove's dung, that's poo, sold for five pieces of silver, right? I don't, like, this isn't KFC. This isn't chicken licking. This is bird poo that he's selling for five pieces of silver, a donkey's head. I mean, someone was telling me the other day about, about, about people that eat like fish heads. I'm like, Enjoy it. That's not my cup of tea. A donkey's head. Uh-uh. But it gives you an idea of just how desperate 
things were actually becoming. In fact, it got even worse. In the, in the following verses, it tells a tale of two ladies. So, so one lady calls out to the king while he's walking on the city wall one day, expressing her need. And he's like, what do you want me to do? If God doesn't help you, there's nothing that I can do. She goes on to tell him her tale of how another lady in the city had convinced her to kill her son, boil him so that they could eat him. And then later on, they would kill and boil this other lady's son and they would eat him. That's how desperate things had become. I'm not exaggerating. I'm not embellishing at all. That's exactly what, what is recorded in 2 Kings chapter 6. And, and the king is distraught. Oh, sorry, because as it turned out, the, they killed the first son. But then when it came time to killing the second son, the lady hid her, hid her boy. These are grotesque and traumatic circumstances which are a lot easier for us to, I guess, measure and appreciate. But I want to encourage you that there are a lot of people around us that even though they're able to hide and cover and maintain a facade, there are a lot of people that are losing their kids, they are losing a sense of purpose, they're losing a sense of identity, even though maybe physically they are still eating and and able to work and, and maybe pay the bills at the end of the month. There are a lot of people that are surviving, that need way more than just a slight increase in their paycheck or just or just to lose a couple of kilos and then everything will be better. No, no, there is way more at stake than what, than what the people you're doing life with are often even aware of. And what that does is, is in some cases it actually brings people to a place of realization where they realize, even, even as you saw in the, in the video just before I came up, where the guy saying at 28, like I was killing it. We, we, I was doing well and I was completely unhappy. Like, it's amazing how there'll still be people that are, they're ticking the boxes, but they know that there's something missing. The story goes on, and then we move on to chapter 7 of Second Kings, and you can read with me in verse 1. Elisha replied, listen to the message from the Lord. This is what the Lord says. So you've got a pretty good idea of how desperate things were. This is what the Lord says, by this time tomorrow in the markets of Samaria, six quarts of choice flour will cost only one piece of silver. Now, bear in mind that a donkey's head was costing 80 pieces. Bird poo was costing five pieces. Flour is going to cost only one piece of silver. And 12 quarts of barley grain will cost only one piece of silver. The officer assisting the king said to the man of God, that couldn't happen even if the Lord opened the windows of heaven. I don't want you to miss the negative declaration that this man is making. For him to declare that even for God, it is impossible. Even if he were to open the gates of heaven, he's saying there's no way that God... That is blasphemy. That is... That is I don't know if, there could be, if there's anything more offensive than to absolutely declare that something is impossible for God. Elijah goes on to... Respond to him saying that you will see it happen tomorrow with your own eyes, but you won't be able to eat any of it. And in just a short while, you'll see that this kind of came to pass. I want to encourage you for a moment. Maybe we don't say it out loud, but sometimes, sometimes we may be tempted to make a similar declaration where we say God could never soften that person's heart. That guy's way too far gone. Even God can't save him. Do you think that offends God? 
I think that offends God. Now, by the way, I'm not suggesting that if you just pray hard enough that God will manipulate or dominate someone. He won't do that. That's not how God works. But God is absolutely able to chip away, to sow seeds, to, to, to do everything that he's willing to do to bring someone to their senses. I want to encourage you not to even allow that thought to come into your mind, to, to, to kind of fester there where you start limiting God and even, and even beginning to declare that it's impossible for God. The Bible tells us that nothing is impossible for God. And then this is where kind of the, the, the story shifts. And all of a sudden, in the next verses, it tells us about four lepers. These, these are guys that, that, that have a, a skin disease that, that, that makes them untouchable. It, it, it makes them complete outcasts in society. So they're living at the, at the city gates, and they're also starving to death. In fact, lepers in those days would often even, even have to wear bells, like a cowbell, around their neck so that when they, when they would walk around, people would know long in advance that, that this untouchable, unclean leper is coming into their vicinity. In fact, they would have to shout, unclean, unclean. So we're talking about serious outcasts, right? So they get to a point where they're saying, well, if we stay here, we're going to die. Because we're starving to death along with everyone else. If we go to the enemy who's besieged our city. So, so, so because the Arameans have besieged the city of Samaria, they are slowly but surely starving to death. So, so whatever food that they had in storage is now gone. They probably stopped up the water sources as well. So these guys are saying, what's the worst that can happen? If we stay here, we're going to die. If we go to the enemy camp, Maybe they kill us, but they won't be any worse off than where we are right now. Who knows? Maybe they'll take mercy on us or have, you know, take pity on us and we'll get to eat something. So, so they've got nothing to lose, so they take a risk. And these four guys go towards the enemy camp. And then the Bible tells us that actually what had happened is during the night, God, send, uh, God sent the sound of a mighty army. So again, nothing tangible happened. God, like, guys, it's, like it's God. It's like he's got this heavenly... Sound desk. Like you can just go, okay, and all of a sudden, there's the sound of armies coming to attack the Arameans. And the Arameans immediately thought that, uh, that the king of Israel had, had hired the Egyptians and, and other armies to come and fight for them. And so they fled. They ran, just dropping stuff, leaving everything behind, leaving, leaving the, uh, the Bible talks about gold and silver, food, wine. Clothing, all kinds of stuff. So, so these four lepers come into the camp, and it's completely deserted, and there's food for days, all kinds of stuff to drink, silver gold, and they're like, you know, as they go from tent to tent to tent, finding all the stuff, and it actually says that they started to hide the gold and the silver. And then we pick up the phrase that I want to stick with you. In 2 Kings 7 verse 9, it says, Finally, this is just after they've been hiding stuff. Finally, they said to each other, This is not right. This is a day of good news, and we aren't sharing it with anyone. If we wait until morning, some calamity will certainly fall upon us. Come on, let's go back and tell the people. At the palace. And I read that, and I can't help wondering if sometimes the angels are kind of like leaning over, wondering, is he going to share the good news 
that he has in this? Like, like is, he, is, he, is he sensitive enough to the Holy Spirit to recognize that actually this conversation is having, that actually there's, like, like he's got an opening? Is, is she going to recognize the opportunity to share? Does, does he recognize and realize what God has done for him, that he realizes that that's not something just to keep hidden or to apologize for, but that he actually has some hope to share? I want you to notice that in so many cases in the Bible, the people that got to share the good news, the people that got to witness and, and talk about Jesus and the things that he did, the people, the people that got to often represent God were often the unlikely, the outcast, the weak, the uneducated. So often God, God had to bypass the well-educated, the well-qualified, because in so many cases, their confidence was so much in their ability that there wasn't the ability to trust God for what only he could do. And in this case, you've got these lepers who, are, who, who have enough sense to recognize that even though this is like a woo day for us, we've still got a whole city of people that are going to die. And sometimes, I think maybe the angels would, would be very happy that Christians are enjoying the benefits, enjoying the spoils of being sons and daughters of God and having a relationship with Him. I think they'd be thrilled that we're worshiping God and, and getting together and celebrating. But I wonder if sometimes they look at each other and think, like, do you think they know that there's still a city of people, that there's still an office, that there's still a school, that there's still family members that are, unless something changes, going to a lost eternity, separated from God. Now again, I want to remind you, I don't want you to walk out of here with a heavy burden. I'm just, I'm just trying to give us some perspective. I want to give us some perspective, not to... Not to you're not, you're not supposed to carry this heavy load. It's supposed to just simply open our eyes to putting things into perspective where we, where we worry a little bit less about some of the first world issues that we get so hung up on. Where, where, we're, where, we, where, where we take maybe just some of the passion that we feel towards ESCOM and we actually put that into something constructive. Because, guys, in eternity, like, we're not going to remember that we had load shedding. We're not going to remember who won the 2019 elections. We're not going to care about what's happening in politics in so many other countries. I, I, I'm just trying to encourage us to have perspective. These lepers, in spite of the incredible joy that they would have felt, like we are, we are saved, we're going to stay alive, they, they had enough sense to stop and say, hold on, there's a whole other city. We can't keep this to ourselves. That's all I'm trying to get across. We have an appropriate, bite-sized responsibility to be open for business, to be interruptible, to be open to sharing the good news <laughs> that we have. Anyway, they go back to the palace, report what's happening. You can imagine, they're a little bit skeptical. They're like, what are these lepers on about? But again, they've got nothing to lose. And the lepers are also just saying, similar to what Sue mentioned last week, just come and see just come and see. What have you got to lose? 
So they send some scouts out. They find out that it's true. They come back to the city, and all of a sudden, it's like, woof, the gates fling open, and they rush out to go and get all these resources that are available in the enemy camp. So in verse 16, it says, And the people of Samaria rushed out and plundered the, the Aramean camp. So it was true, because God's not a liar. God will never be mocked. That six quarts of choice flour were sold that day for one piece of silver, and 12 quarts of barley grain were sold for one piece of silver, just as the Lord had promised. By the way, God also promises that if we will go, if we will do what we can, if we'll play our role in making disciples, that he will go with us. That's a promise. Acts 1 verse 8 is a promise that, that, if, that if we're Christians, if, if we grow in a relationship with him, that the Holy Spirit, Acts 1 verse 8, the Holy Spirit will give you power to be witnesses. These are promises that God doesn't change. And then verse 17, just to, just to kind of close the loop on what we read about earlier in terms of the prophecy, the king appointed the officer to control, his officer to control the traffic at the gate, but he was knocked down and trampled to death as the people rushed out. And so it goes on to say, almost word for word, that Elisha's prophecy, that you will see it, but not get a taste of it, came true. Don't mock God. Don't tell God what he cannot do, no matter what he does. God will not be mocked. God, God cares about people. He will come through on his word. So just three very quick thoughts before we close in a couple of minutes. Number one is just, it is our responsibility to share hope. It's not your responsibility to judge. It's not your responsibility to correct. It's our responsibility to connect and it is our responsibility to share hope. Sue read the scripture last week in 1 Peter 3 verse 15, that if someone asks you, we're talking about Christians, if you're in a relationship with God, about the hope that you have as a believer, always be ready to share it. Romans 10 Verse 13 and 14 says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, but how can they call on him to save them unless they believe in him? And how can they believe in him if they've never heard about him? And how can they hear about him unless someone tells them? Make no mistake, in 2019, it is important that we earn credibility, that we invest before we invite. We know that people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. So yes, all of that's important. But somewhere along the line, there's going to be an opportunity and a responsibility to share. Because what if they just think you're a great Buddhist? You're a really generous Muslim. You're a really lovely, new agey, wavy, whatever person who's just, who's just always so patient and kind and sweet. And they never find out that the reason for your hope how will they know unless someone tells them? So we have to share hope. Secondly, you have to share your story. Not somebody, I mean, there's nothing wrong with sharing other people's story. And you can invite people to or, or send people links on, on testimonies. That's great. And, and even in Alpha, there, there, are, there are stories of different people from different walks of life and, and the journey that they went on. But I want to encourage you that there's power even in your story. You don't have to embellish it. You don't have to exaggerate it. You don't have to over-dramatize it. You don't have to have been this pimp, drug-dealing gangster turned Mother Teresa to get someone's attention. You can just share your story. 
I was always striving. I was always insecure. No matter what I did, no matter, no matter how I produced or what results I got, there was always something that was missing. Something happened, and where you can explain what happened. How, what, what was it that got your attention? In my case, it was the camp 25 years ago that our young people are on this weekend, and God met with me in a way that was absolutely life-changing, where I felt a peace that no amount of success, no amount of accomplishment, no amount of approval could ever compare to. There was a supernatural peace that, that impacted me, and that, and that left me wanting more, wanting that security, wanting that identity. And I can tell you that over the last 25 years, even though there have been challenges and storms and, 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 and pain, God has consistently brought me back to a place of a peace and a security that passes understanding. That's my story. I don't have this radical rags to riches. I was, a, I was in prison for killing you know, 17 people. Now, you know, I, I don't have that. It's, but, but I can tell you what my story is. In John chapter 9, we see a story of a guy which, I mean, if you actually have the time to go and read the story, I think it's actually quite comical. I can only imagine people actually making a a, a short little film about this encounter where Jesus comes across a guy who, who was born blind. He's now an adult, so he's been blind his whole life. He's actually a beggar because that was his only way of trying to, to get some kind of sustenance. And Jesus does that thing that Jesus does sometimes where it's a little bit weird and he spits in the mud and, or, or the sand, makes mud, puts it in the guy's eyes. Listen, I don't know about you, but if it's going to help me see, spit away. Do whatever you have to do, okay? So Jesus, anyway, mud, all of a sudden he's healed and, and this guy is also like freaking out. You can imagine he's, he's thrilled. The family find out, or the community, find out. people are like saying, wait, what? Is, is that the guy that always used to, you know, st- you know, sit there begging? They weren't too sure. He's like, yes, it's me, you know? And so this gets to the religious leaders. They're a little bit freaked out because they heard that Jesus had something to do with it and it was a Sabbath day. So they're like, hey, come and tell us about this. He tells them, he just tells them what happened. He doesn't try and convince them. He doesn't try and convert them. He, in fact, he says, I don't know anything more about him. I, can't, I don't have some theological explanation. All I can tell you is that this is what happened, and this is what happened. Then they call his parents, and they're like, tell us what happened. They're like, he's an adult. He can speak for himself, because they were nervous that the religious leaders would do something to him. And then a second time, they call him back in. We pick it up. You'll see it on the screen, uh, verse 24. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and told him, God should get the glory for this. We agree. Because we know this man, Jesus, is a sinner. Okay, we don't agree. His response is classic and should encourage us to how you should respond to people. I don't know whether he's a sinner, because he didn't. He's not being offensive or dismissive. He, he didn't know who Jesus was at the time. I don't know whether he is a sinner, the man replied, but I know this. I was blind, and now I see. I can't tell you how all of this stuff works out. All I can tell you is I used to strive, and no matter what I did, I never felt quite good enough. There was always this guilt, this shame, this what if, and this perfectionism. All I can tell you is when I opened my life up to God, he started to give me peace. Peace even when I failed. Peace even when I sinned. Peace even when I felt like I'm not good enough. All I, I can't explain it to you, but I can tell you God gave me peace. We need to share hope. We need to be able to share our story. And, and all you're doing in your stories, you're thinking about before Christ, conversion or at the cross, and after the conversion. What did he do for me? And lastly, we need to share his story. And I realize that for many of us, 
even though, even though you may be in a situation where you believe, for many of us, we don't actually have a simple, clear way of just sharing his story. And so just in closing, I want to remind you of John chapter 3, verse 16, very well-known passage of Scripture. In the New Living Translation, it puts it this way, For this is how God loved the world. He gave His one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in Him will not perish, but have eternal life. If you want to remember something very simple, all the Scripture is saying is that God loved, God gave, I believe, I receive. God loved, God gave, I believe, I receive. Now, of course, we can flesh that out, and, and it doesn't answer every question. But, but if those things can just help remind you, when, if you have the opportunity to share with someone, where you can just simply say, listen, I don't have all the answers, but I can tell you, I believe God loves you. I believe that He created us on purpose because He loved us. But we've all sinned. But here's the good news. Because He loves us, He gave a solution to our sin problem. Even in the Garden of Eden, when, when Adam and Eve sinned, they didn't go looking for God. They hid away. God went looking for them. God loved. God gave. What that reminds people of, and by the way, this is critical. If you want to know the single, the single uh, greatest distinguishing truth about Christianity to any other world religion, it is grace. This, if you want to... Boil it all down. It comes down to the fact that we cannot, we cannot climb our way to God. God came down to us, and He made a way for free that we cannot add to. You cannot add to what Jesus did at the cross by groveling, by begging, by pleading, by, by paying a penance. It is radical. It's free. God loved, God gave. I believe, I receive. It's, it's, it's as we accept that gift of forgiveness and as we choose to follow him that's where we begin a journey that's where we begin a relationship with God it's not good people that get to spend eternity with God it is humble people that have accepted forgiveness and that have chosen to follow him Jesus didn't come to make bad people good Jesus came to make dead people alive there's nothing that we can do within our own strength. Does this make sense? It is our responsibility to share. Let's live lives where the angels are like, it's okay, I know him, I know her. They'll recognize the opportunity, they'll share the good news that they have when given that opportunity. Agreed?